They total over $300 billion. To give you an idea of how much that is, Christians outgave the United States government when it comes to addressing global poverty. So that's a positive sign. At least there's some positive signs. Um, granted, much of it is simply the fact that the guys put so much wealth in the hands of American Christians. We're so fabulously wealthy compared to you know, Christians around, you know, around the world. I think that nationwide Christians give about 2.5% of their income to charity, which is you know, not a lot, and yet that is way higher than the general population. You know, secular people are not at all very... Um, we, talk a, we talk a good game about the poor, but we don't live it out in our, in our spending. Uh, what's special about the early church, the early Christians, they stuck out in the Greco-Roman society for, and we talked about this a little bit already, be, because of their integrity, because of their honesty, because of their sympathy and willingness to forgive, because of their, their um, generosity and their sexual chastity. Oh, there comes a light. <laughs> and we get a picture of their astounding generosity here at the end of Acts chapter 4, uh, Acts 5. It's an idealized picture, admittedly. You know, the passage says that of the 10,000 Christians that were in the city of Jerusalem at that time, there wasn't a needy person among them. You know, in other words, like every one of the Christian poor were taken care of. I mean, it's an idealized little bit of heaven on earth due to the radical generosity of God's people. But not everything as well as the story will show. Because in addition to the generosity, you have uh, this judgment of God that comes immediately upon two Christian people and they're struck dead in chapter 5. So there's a lot to explore in the passage. And before we do, I want us to pray again. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you again. One of the reasons we worry about money so much and we're hesitant to be generous with our finances is essentially we're looking for our wealth to be a kind of security that only you can provide. So open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word now and teach our hearts to find our true security only in Christ in heaven, a wealth that cannot run dry. We ask it in his holy name. Amen. Acts 4.32, we read, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their positions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And we get the story of Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he had owned and brought the money and laid it or put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Uh, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. 
And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, and uh, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, first off, let's talk about generosity. When people say that, you know, I can't afford to give, what they're really saying is, I can't afford to give without burdening myself. You know, the Bible teaches that we, um, that we in community are to bear one another's burdens. Paul says, bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. How do you bear someone else's burdens without burdening yourself, right? It's impossible. It's impossible. Um, in order to bear another person's burdens financially, it means that you're going to voluntarily reduce your standard of living for the sake of someone else. And so when, there's, when you have a church and it's healthy and it's looking at the, the needs of fellow Christians and looking at the needs outside the church, that is a church that will be like willingly lowering one's you know, standard of living for the sake of other people. And why do we do it? Is it because we're just money hungry and all we want is more money for the church? No, we do it, you know, I'm being facetious, but it, it's all because of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I mean, there Paul has just given us the, the basis of, of all of our thoughts related to sacrificial giving, like, that by his poverty, we have become unfathomably rich. And you just think about all the promises that have been made to us. He says that you will inherit the world. You're going to inherit the world. You, you've been promised that everything you need will be provided for you by your Father in heaven. You've been promised that somehow, some way in God's economy, you have treasure in heaven where you know, moth and rust cannot you know, destroy and where a thief cannot break in and steal. Like we, we are so rich beyond every conception, all because of the voluntary poverty of Jesus. I mean, what could be more impoverished than dying a slave's death on the cross? And so Paul, he argues his case with a church that had more wealth in it in order to give to other Christians who were struggling. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 3. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, that in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and they gave even beyond their ability. Isn't, isn't that an interesting phrase? Like, what does it mean to give even beyond your ability? Because that was the, the, the level that Paul was encouraging this other church to operate at. Um, well, I suppose you could interpret even beyond their ability to mean like you're supposed to impoverish yourself. And Jesus was impoverished, and so you be impoverished. I don't think that's what he means. But 
that has how is how it's been interpreted during certain moments in church history. And so I have a funny, what I think is kind of funny, church history story before we go on. John Wesley, he hugely famous American preacher in early America who uh, would go on his horseback and go into, you know, colonial towns and preach and there'd be revival. And so John Wesley, he preached thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons. And his sermons were collected and they were uh, recorded, collected, and printed, and then sold. And so Wesley ended up making a fair bit of money on the sale of his sermons. The funny thing is, if you go back, has anybody read a Wesley sermon before? They are dry as dust. Like, they will put you, if you, you need to fall asleep at night, just read a Wesley sermon. Because they're, but back in their day, they were hugely popular, and he made a little bit of money. Wesley was insanely jealous, I mean, generous, not jealous, insanely generous with his money. Uh, in the latter parts of his life, he gave away about 98% of all of his income to the church and to the poor. Um, very generous, very foolish, depending on who you talk to, because he also had a wife, Susanna, and they had a mere 13 children to take care of. So apparently the story is told in church history that one day, uh, Susanna being a rather formidable woman, um, Wesley comes in off of one of his preaching circuits and she's like, um, John, where's the money? Where's the money for me and the kids? And he says, I gave it all away. And so <laughs> she chases him around the house and she grabs him by that white hair <laughs> and she starts to beat him in, in the middle of the house. Don't, there's a picture of her. Uh, don't be fooled by the bonnet. She is a, she's a mean character. <laughs> so Susanna Wesley um, was not very happy about how John interpreted uh, to give beyond one's ability. I don't, think, I don't think that it means that we are to impoverish ourselves. I mean, of course, we're supposed to care for our families. But, but friends, if we are going to err with our money, like, shouldn't we err on the side of generosity Instead of erring all the time on the side of our own comfort, which is exactly what we are programmed to do, that that's what our instincts tell us. We're always siding with our own comfort rather than, you know, siding with the poor and siding with others. You know, here we read just in chapter four, I forget the actual verse, how Barnabas, he sold the money, the sold the land that he owned and he gave the money to the church. The, the Holy Spirit was at work in the heart and the mind of Barnabas to, to do this. And I really believe this. I fully believe that if you are paying attention to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will send you on financial assignments, if you will, to, to serve other people. That there will be time that in addition to your baseline charitable giving, you'll feel the Spirit nudging you saying, hey, like, go buy groceries for that single mom. Go pay high school tuition for that kid whose uh, family can't afford it. Uh, take that extra car that you have that you don't really need and give it to that student. Like, again and again, he'll send you on, like, little missions, financial missions. There was a, a lady, a single mom at our church previously in Boise. I tell you, one of the most powerful moments in her life was when she... Uh, her husband had left her. She didn't have anything. And one day she comes to church and a, a couple of the men were, they just took notice that the, the tires on her, on her van were bald. 
And, and they took notice. And they said, we're going to buy you some tires. We take her down to the tire shop and just and buy them because they were being sensitive to the spirit because um, love notices things like that. Love notices. And I, I probably heard her tell that story either to me or other people on five different occasions because it had such an effect on her and her children. And I think that happens a lot when we um, are attentive to the Holy Spirit, when we see ourselves as stewards and not owners of our money. Because ownership, ownership says it's mine, I earned it, I deserve it, I'm entitled to it, I will use it, I will consume it, I will spend it. Spend it. Ownership is M-I-N-E, and stewardship is not mine. <laughs> it's not mine. What I have is not mine. It's just a gift from the Lord. And, and he gives to us so extravagantly so that the money would pass through our hands into the hands of those that are more needy. He gives to us so that, we might, that he might give through us. I'm not going to make any apologies for um, sending out, as I did in this week's e- weekly email, um, you know, give to, to relief efforts in Turkey and Syria, or, you know, give to re- relief efforts in Ukraine, or I, I'm making no apologies whatsoever for that because we have way more than we need and we, we've, we should give. I mean, and I also know that this is a fact. One of the evidences that someone has truly met Jesus is their view of their wealth. It just changes. And instead of like looking always for opportunities to take, to take, to take, we start really looking for opportunities to give. Okay, that's all. Most of what I'm going to say about generosity. The second part of this, the passage is the problematic passage. We have this immediate judgment and death of two Christians, Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, I don't know about you, but when I think of the things God could have struck me down for that I have done in my life, um, selling a piece of property and giving like, I don't know, 80 or 90 percent of that property to the church and holding back just a little bit for myself and lying a little bit about it, that doesn't rise to like the, the list of my deadly sins that I've committed. I don't know about you, but it seems like it seems like a really strange thing for God to strike them down for. I mean, it's clear that they gave a very substantial gift. I mean, so substantial that originally the apostles think they've given the whole gift. It was, it was that much. And yet here, God immediately acts upon them. He strikes them down. They're not given a second chance. You think of how many times has God given you a second chance and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance. How many times have you promised God, oh God, I won't do this anymore, and then you just turn around and you do it. Why do these, why do Ananias and Sapphira not get a second chance? Well, I've got a couple ideas on that. First, Peter makes clear that they could have given whatever it was that they they wanted to give, whatever amount they wished, Um, They were allowed. Uh, Most Bible scholars then say that the reason they were judged was for their sin of lying to the Holy Spirit and for their sin of pride, wanting other people to think highly of them. 
It's almost like, you know, going to the church that's got the big uh, giving board on the wall and you got, you know, your platinum, platinum level, level givers and you got your Maranatha level, level givers and your hallelujah level givers of Ananias and Sapphira. They're like, we want a platinum plaque with our names on it. And we want to be seen as generous people who, um, who are people of influence and authority. That's, that's the normal way the passage gets interpreted. I don't think that's actually it, or mostly it. And the clue is found in verse 2, Acts 5-2. One thing I should say before we look at this is immediate judgment in the Bible is very, very rare. There's very few instances where somebody is just struck down by the hand of God. Uh, You know, the, the only times that I mostly could think of were moments when, how do I put it? When holy space is violated. So there was that instance where they're moving the Ark of the Covenant and they're not doing it properly. And a guy reaches out, he puts his hand onto the Ark of the Covenant, which was an exceptionally holy piece of furniture. He violates holy space. He struck down dead. Um, there was another instance where some guys go into the temple, the holy space of the temple, and they burn incense that was not to be offered in the temple. They violate that holy space. Like you die when holy space, unique holy spaces are violated because the temple and the ark, were, they were so dramatically holy. Every blemish was magnified. There's one other story that may, that may bear some weight on this. In the book of Joshua, After they take the city of Jericho, God basically says, all of the plunder of the city of Jericho is holy. It is mine, and don't touch it. It's not not to touch. But there's a guy by the name of Achan, is his name, and he looks, and he's like, oh, I want that. Oh, I really want that. And so he takes that, and and he keeps it for himself, and he, you know, buries it in his tent, and uh, he keeps it back. When you read verse 5, chapter 5, verse 2, Go ahead and pull it back up. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought it to rest and put it at the apostles' feet. That word kept back is the very same word that's used in the book of Joshua of Achan's sin. My guess is that the apostles' feet was holy space. It might be a metaphor for the church. It might be Luke's way of telling us that this the apostles and the church were kind of like a new temple. But I think what they've done is they've taken something and they put it at the apostles' feet like a false offering that violates that holy space. That's may, that may be what's going on. The second clue is in verse 3 where we read um, Peter talking to Ananias. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? In other words, Peter's telling us that Whatever was going on was an actual plot of the devil, of the Satan, that Satan had come and, and, and filled his heart. Does anybody else in the Bible, does another name come to mind of Satan coming and filling somebody's heart to do something truly evil? Who am I talking about? Judas, right. See, Satan filled Judas's heart and had Judas trade Jesus out for money. That money was blood money. And what did he do with the money afterwards? He goes and he throws the money into the temple. He throws the blood money into the temple and the priests say, oh, we can't have that here because 
because it's unholy, it's violating, it's defiling the temple. I think somehow Satan is trying the same trick again. He's trying to take the holy space of the church and corrupt it with tainted money, with a false offering. And so it's for that reason that God immediately acts. Now, does this mean that, I don't know, Ananias and Sapphira went, you know, directly to hell, don't pass go, don't collect $200? We don't know what happened to those two Christians. The Bible doesn't tell us about their fate, but it does suggest that there was something special about that early community that God wanted to protect. There was something devious of Satan's design that he wanted to defile and and so he does, he takes this decisive action to protect that early church. Briefly and finally, uh, I do agree that there was a lie. There was a lie particularly against the Holy Spirit. Uh, they lied, and that was surely part of the judgment. What, what is a lie? What is a lie? A lie is intentionally trying to deceive someone in, you know, through your thoughts, uh, or through your actions, through your words, or through your actions. Lies are thefts of reality. Like, when we lie, we are telling other people simply that you don't deserve the truth, or you can't handle the truth. Like, lies are meant to keep people in the dark. Um, Lies are meant to obscure reality. And then why is it that we lie? We lie because at that moment, there's something we feel we must have to survive and to be truly happy. You know, Ananias and Sapphira lied because they wanted the approval of others. And guess what? We lie for that reason, too. We lie because we want the approval of others. We lie a lot of the times behind our lies or fears. We're afraid. We're, we're afraid that of consequences that are negative that have become in our way. Or we're afraid that we'll miss out on something we desperately must have an absolutely need. The greatest danger of lies, of course, is how they eat away at the trust that binds us together. Uh, I love this image. Like a lie is like pouring hydrochloric acid on the thin fabric of human relationships. Like lies are hungry, hungry like an acid. It, It eats the thin fabric of our relationships away. It's for that reason. The boyfriends and girlfriends, if they can't trust each other, they're not going to stay together. Marriages, you can't trust each other, they're not going to last. And neither do families, really, and neither do church communities. As Paul has shown us, the way for the church is to speak the truth in love, as he said in Ephesians chapter 4. And we need to be that kind of community that that values truth, that values love, that doesn't pit them together, that, that holds to both. You know, I hope that we can become a community where people don't have to you know, put on a show to make themselves look more virtuous or noble or altruistic than we really are. Like We don't have to uh, get the lipstick out and paint up the piggish parts of ourselves. I mean, we can be very honest about who we are and not all of it's pretty, but that's okay because you know we live under the grace of the cross. As we've said before, to be a Christian is to be fully known and truly loved, period. Like, that's the gospel. Fully known, truly loved, period. Well, in conclusion, um, going back to our wealth, studies indicate there's very little correlation between wealth and contentment. 
That actually, the more prosperous a society becomes, the more prosperous we become, the more common (laughs) depression becomes. Like, basically, after getting our basic needs met as human beings, the other stuff that we think, the money we think is going to bring us fulfillment and contentment, it just doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. I mean, like, you've seen time and again, haven't you, with rich families end up having very entitled children, and it just ends up killing them. It, kill, it, kills, it kills us all. You know, more and more money just, it makes us often more miserable. Keep that in mind when you listen to, the, to Luke, who wrote, you know, his gospel and the book of Acts. You know, he's the one of all the gospel writers who speaks more about our obligations to the poor than anybody else. And he's the one who speaks more harshly uh, to the rich than anybody else. I could go through the, the different verses and show it to you. Just take my word. He's very, very hard on the rich, which is why some people have concluded that he's opposed to the rich. Like Luke is like a rich hater, so to speak. That's not true. I, after all, he's writing to a rich man. You know, at the beginning of the gospel, he's writing it to, in the book of Acts, he's writing it to Theophilus, who we think was a rich man who used his wealth to finance the research project that we have, which is called Luke-Acts. Um, both of our, those books are addressed to Theophilus, who was wealthy, probably a government official, probably a patron of the book, of the arts. So there would be no Luke-Acts if it weren't for a rich man. And then secondly, Luke was probably wealthy too. I mean, it says he was a physician. Now, I know that back in their day, slaves were physicians and, and not necessarily the upper crust of society, but he was a doctor. His writings show him to be well-educated, well-traveled, well-con- well-connected, a very cosmopolitan guy. So when you read Luke and Acts, he's not a poor man writing to denounce the rich. He's a rich man writing to another rich man about what it means to follow Jesus with all those riches in your hands. And his answer is time and time again, be generous to the poor, be generous to your neighbor, be generous to your fellow brothers, brother and sister in, in Christ. Follow Jesus in the way of radical generosity. And that turns out to be, it turns out to be the most joyful and fulfilling way of life. Amen.